Hey everyone, welcome into the Buddhist Wisdom Podcast. I have one of my dear, dear friends here with us, uh, Paula Chichester. Uh, Paula, welcome to the Buddhist Wisdom Podcast. Really nice to see you. Really yeah. nice to see you. Such an old friend. Yeah. 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 I'm really looking yeah. forward to this. So, so Paula uh, took some time out of her uh, busy teaching schedule to come talk with us today and share uh, some of her wisdom, uh, share her history of, you know, in, intensive uh, Buddhist practice and um, all of that. And so Paula is a um, Buddhist teacher, a uh, longtime practitioner, uh, musician, songwriter, as well as, as we're discovering already, um, very, very good friend of mine, an actual mentor. So early on in my um, study of Buddhism. I started around around age 19 or 20, and I met uh, Paula when I was 23. And and, and really, uh, um, for me, when I first met you, Paula, I, you know, I was just like, I was so excited to meet you because I had heard about you. And I was like, yeah. wow, there's these people really doing it, really doing <laughs> hardcore retreat. And, you know, I think some of my listeners know my half-baked fantasies of wanting to be Milarepa, you know, and so... <laughs> I was on that trip. And so when I met you, Paula, yeah. that was yeah. part of it where I was just like, I really wanna, I really wanna know this person. And 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 you know, you went on to not only be a, a really good friend, but actually a mentor of mine. So so yeah, so I just wanted to start out yeah. with that. I just really thank you for being here again. Yeah, well, it's just really great to see you again. Cause I I think we parted ways about a decade ago and I've hardly I mean, I I get your emails and I read them half the time. And yeah. and I have to say, you're a very good writer. I'm impressed with. I mean, I knew you were smart, but still, you. I didn't realize your language skills were so good. So I have to say that because you are a good Thank writer. You. But what I remember most about about Namsel Scott was, um, we were in the in a recording studio for quite a few hours because when I first met him, that's what he was. He's a recording engineer, and he offered to record some of my songs for me. But we'd spend more time talking about Dharma than we would. <laughs> recording the songs because we'd get there and I'd go in there and Scott would want to talk and we just talk and talk and talk but what about this we have to like <laughs> fix the sound over here you know but he would go ah, you know so totally that probably like annoying you with a million dharma <laughs> questions uh. <laughs> no it was good I was happy I was happy to talk to you yeah yeah I was in San Francisco yeah yeah we can get into that because you know Paula and I um just for the listeners here we we recorded a more than an album together. We did an out, al- you know, I recorded an album with you, but we also two. did other we demos. Did two. And- oh, we did yeah, two. We did okay. two albums. We did two yeah. albums. Yeah. yeah. The only albums I ever did because you were the only recording engineer I knew. <laughs> <laughs> that is unfortunate for you, but very fortunate for me. <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a drummer and you played drums and you played really nice. The, the best, my favorite part besides your engineering part was when you'd played percussion because you were really good at just adding just really tasty little bits and pieces to the music. Yeah, <clears throat> thank you. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, I'd love to kick this off just, you know, with, with uh, watchers, listeners getting to know you a little bit more, Paula, because, you know, I know you, but um, maybe they don't. Um, so, yeah. you know, you, you've been a, you've been a, a practicing Buddhist. I, I think it, it has to be over, over 40 years, 35 years, uh, I think. Well, I actually started reading Dharma books uh, 56 years ago. Wow. 
I'm 70, believe it or not. I turned 70 this year <laughs> and I started, I got, I started reading Dharma books when I was 14. Okay. And, uh, I, and I was, but back then we're talking about like 1967. And at that time there wasn't Tibetan Buddhism. I mean, not that we knew of, you know, maybe Evans Wentz had written that book about Milarepa, but you know, it hadn't really, I mean, I, at least not where I, I I grew up in Berkeley, California, most of my life. And I was very fortunate to be in such a progressive place where there was a lot of Buddhism and Zen practitioners and people that had been down to Tassajara and there was Suzuki Roshi and all that influence and Gary Snyder. And, mm. but I, I was just fortunate to be, I don't know how it happened, but I was in a class at Berkeley High School in the ninth grade where I don't know how it happened, but we just read two books. We sat around like graduate students and we read two books. One was the Bhagavad Gita and one was the Compassionate Teachings of Buddha. And I think, I think it was because of the Beatles. I think the Beatles had been to India. And so everyone was like, Oh, we want to know about that. So, so we read those books. And then I had, and then after I read that Buddhist book, I was in Big Sur and I had this really, really profound experience that totally alienated me from my life from life mm. and um i'm pretty sure now looking back especially now that i've been um experiencing more familiarity with the Dzogchen tradition that i had some kind of experience like that mm. and i can remember coming back and being so changed and and coming back to my parents i wanted to move into a closet there was a closet like harry potter's you know and i wanted to be in this cave and i just had this thing i and and I couldn't ha find any adult that could help me understand what had happened to me. And so I just kind of just got it, you know, and plus the war in Vietnam was going on and we were having a war in our town. And I just kind of got very alienated from my culture and was uh, very actively <clears throat> looking for a culture that made more sense, that was a more pacifying culture. And I, and I found it in, in you know, Mostly uh, in the Zen books I was reading because there weren't there wasn't much besides that, and uh, but I was always a little bit afraid of <clears throat> sorry uh, Zen. Uh oh, light went off. Zen culture because it was just too harsh for me, you know. And I had a very a very active mind. I had a mind that was what we would call lung now, you know, but like yeah. nervous mind. And the thought of just having to sit there and be still. And just look at my mind. I didn't think I could manage it. And so what was really helpful is then about 10 years later or 12 years later, I met a, a Tibetan Lama, Lama Kunga, who had a place up in Berkeley, a Sakya Lama. Yeah. He's um, supposed to be the reincarnation of uh, Rechungpa, you know, Milarepa's uh, main disciple besides Gampopa. And, yeah. and, uh, and then so, and then it was like, oh, they gave me something to do with my mind, you know, like Omani Pei Mihung, or but that's what it was, or just or just thinking about the four immeasurables and things like that. So then, so then I'm, I, so then I had a way in to to actually doing practice, yeah. and uh, then I met Lama Tupton Yeshi, and and by then I had um, been, you know, practicing yoga and qigong, and had some done some vipassana meditation. And so when I met uh, Lama Yeshi, I was just so ripe for, for the Dharma that when I, and he was such an extraordinary teacher that um, 
I, I mean, I could, he, he introduced me to the nature of my mind. Yeah. And once, I mean, I didn't know that's what it was called. I didn't call it a pointing out instruction or anything like that, but that's definitely what he did. Yeah. And, and again, it was like, oh, that, that again, you know, it was like, oh, there's that again, you know? And so that, then I just, that's what I needed. I knew I had to, I could not, I could not not pursue it. Like I couldn't, I just had to go for it. You know, there was no turning back. It didn't. And at the time I had been, you know, training as a dancer for 10 years. I just quit dancing. I just quit everything. You know, I just like all that discipline that I was putting into dance, you know, like four hours of practice a day. It was very easy yeah. to go. Well, that's, into a, that's, the, and I, that's a lot. Yeah, I, and, I knew you were a dancer. I didn't realize it was that, it was that intense. Yeah. Well, maybe it wasn't four hours. I mean, I, at least, you know, a class almost every day. And then you do stretching and yoga and all that kind of stuff, you know, yeah. like your mom. Your mom was a dancer, wasn't she? Exactly. Yeah. She was a professional yeah. dancer. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I never really, I mean, I just got to the point where I was, you know, being asked to be in performances. And then I met the Dharma and that was it. I, my last <laughs> performance actually was in India. It's on YouTube, actually. Now. Really? Yeah. Yeah. But I, yeah, it's, you can see it. It's called, uh, entertainment at the enlightened experience celebration nick ribush put it on there oh. so it was in india the first eec yeah it looks i'm so young then but anyway um so that's that's what happened and then i just uh you know lamia she said he was coming back to teach the six yogas of naropa but first we had to do a mahamudra course with lama zopa so i just signed up for everything and then i found out about this incredible six months of teachings was happening in India. So um, it was really cool. I was in a graduate school at the time in, at, at UC Berkeley, and I was uh, working. What year with, was this? Just just this is 1981, I think 81, 82. Okay. And um, I was looking for help I worked for a professor we had who taught a class that was about systems thinking and how to think outside the box because the whole uh department that I was in the conservation resource conservation of natural resources was about preparing us for the upcoming climate change and the depletion of all the resources and that mm. and the idea was is that we needed to think differently we needed to learn how to think differently and so I thought, you know, meditation and Buddhism would be a really good way. So I was trying to figure out a way to teach it at university without it being Buddhism. You know, that's I what I wanted to do just to get, uh, to try to get people to, uh, understand that scientists to, to think there's, to realize there's no objectivity, that it's always mm -hmm. subjective, that the mm -hmm. eyes always projecting. You know, I knew that it was like, okay, so we get, we need to get people to think about that. So that they will understand that rational thought processes aren't necessarily as rational as people think they are. Yeah. So, yeah. So, um, but so my professor at the time helped me. He, he was so cool because I didn't have the money to go to this teaching in India, but he paid me for a whole some, uh, some quarter of being a TA. So I'd have enough money to go to India thinking I would come back and continue mm -hmm. to help him teach his classes. But when I got to India, I had such profound experiences with Kebri Song Rinpoche teaching these high sugar tantra, t uh, tantras, you know, where they were teaching us how to die with awareness and go through the re, you know, go through the intermediate stage and take rebirth as a Buddha. And I'm like, 
wow, this is the most fascinating science ever. This is way more important, <laughs> you know? So I just dropped everything. It was a big decision, but I dropped everything and just spent the next uh, 25, 30 years in, you know, just doing that, nothing else. And I managed to do it without ever having to have a job. And a lot of that was because I met a, this really uh, wonderful person named Roger Munro who helped support me and, um, we we worked we worked together because there were yeah. there weren't really any other people that we knew at that time that wanted to do that. You know, he wanted to be Milarepa. He wanted he wanted to. We we I remember we told Lamieshi we wanted to become Mahasiddhas this life, right? Yeah. And of course, when you're 28, you think you can. You know, you think <laughs> well, especially when they tell you, oh, you just need to do a three year retreat and you get enlightened. Well, I'm signing up. Let's do one. You know, so I did one. <laughs> Wait, but, but it's not it's not that easy you know and yeah. and that's what segues into because then you run up against everything that comes with the package of being a western person you know your disembodiment yeah. your childhood issues your um you know the 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 tension in your body and all these things that they didn't really have to contend with in tibet you know not to yeah. mention the you know the poisonous environments we live in you know so, so, yeah. No, no. Sorry, I just be. I, I just wanted to know a little bit more about this. This this six month, you know, because because a lot of the listeners, you know, who, who won't know what this was. This is quite a, you know, profound gathering that happened yeah. um, in the early eighties. Uh, so, which was called the Enlightenment Experience. You know, basically curated by uh, Lama Yeshe and and yeah. Lama Zopa Rinpoche. So, so yeah, I just love if you, if you want to say a little bit more about that and like the context. Of yeah, that. well, what there were three of them actually. Oh, okay. and and Lama Lama Yeshi planned these things, and I think a lot of people, I think your listeners are mostly you know Dharma practitioners, and uh, you know Lama Yeshi was a, a Galukpa practitioner from Sarah Monastery, and um, but he he didn't necessarily teach like a Galupa Lama. Mm -hmm. He taught more like a Kagyu Lama, actually. He, what he taught was Mahamudra. And, I f and just something I found out just recently, I was in India, because someone told me that he shared a lot of conversations with Kempo Sultram Gyatso when they were in Buxa, when they were in the prison. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, okay. Yeah, I didn't know that either, but I, someone told me a few years ago. And because, you know, I... I really learned how to meditate from Lama Yeshi, and then Lama Yeshi died in 1984. And I just thought, well, I just, I just continued it within that lineage because that was Lama's lineage. And I just thought, well, the next thing I need to do is be go study with uh, Lama Zoparimche, his main mm. student. But I never really found any of that in the Galukpas until years later. Yeah. I found more resonance with the Kagyu teachings of Mahamudra from Lamieshi, which is very interesting because um, just about a month ago or three weeks ago, I was in back in Dharamsala where all these teachings happened at McLeod Gunge. Yeah. And um, and I, I went into Lamieshi's room. He had this tiny little room. And there on the wall was the Kagyu uh, lineage Lama Tonka. Oh, wow. It wasn't the Lama Chupa. It was, mm -hmm. you know, Vajradhara and Talopa and Naropa and Marpa and Mila, you know, it's different, you know, it's a different tree, you know? Yeah. And that really was like, okay, 
you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he, he seemed a, he, he seemed like a Rime, you know, non-sectarian practitioner. Yeah, know, he he heart. definitely was. He definitely was. You know, he was also a Christian. I mean, he was he did everything. You know, <laughs> and yeah, um, just just for the listeners, if you just real briefly, if you want to say more, Paul, because you you actually he was your teacher. Actually, I partly why I came into the Tibetan Buddhism was through the books of Lama Yeshe. So I think that's part of our connection too. But yeah, Lama Yeshe is just this incredible, eclectic, you know, Tibetan Buddhist Lama who, with Lama Zopa, was pretty early on in the West, you know, in in, in bringing Tibetan Buddhism into the West. They were one of the earlier ones, which, you know, that organization now uh, came to be known as the Foundation for the Preservation of the Mayana Tradition. And it's, you know, it's, it's been one of the larger... Galukpo organizations um, in the West. Um, just our, our Lama, Lama Zopramshi, just passed away. So he he had he had be, he was the heir to to Lama Yeshe, but now you know he, he we just lost him as well. Um, but yeah, I just wanted to share that just so people have some background of who Lama Yeshe was. Yeah, well, the the thing is that I just want to share with people too because a lot of people. You know, we have this thing about, oh, the Galupas, they're all, they're intellectual and they do all this debate and study. And that's true. But what a lot of people don't know is there's also an ear whispered lineage. Lama Sankaba was a yogi. He wasn't just a scholar. He was an incredible yogi who spent at least three years in retreat living on just like eating one juniper berry three times a day with five or six of his disciples, you know, and he just did this incredible ascetic practice and attained very high realizations. I mean, he, he didn't, um, go all the way because he said he would do it in the bardo because he thought it was so important to be a monk. He didn't want to do the final, you know, mood, karma mudra practice. Mm-hmm. But, um, but so what Lamieshi wanted to do is he wanted to transmit to us this ear whispered lineage of Lama Sankapa. And so that's what would happened at these three enlightened experience celebrations. And so the Dalai Lama, it's the, the one in, the one I went to and, and it started in the, the fall of 81. Well, I didn't, I, I got there a bit late, but the main teaching was the Mahamudra teachings that His Holiness mm-hmm. gave, which was oh, totally non sectarian. And then after that, we had, you know, it was a lot of high, mostly it was high yoga tantra like Ch and Chakrasambara and Guya Samaja. And it just blew my mind because the teachers at that time, Especially Kabji Sang Rinpoche and His Holiness. I mean, when they were telling it to you, you would have the experience. You know, so yeah. you'd be sitting there and your chakras would be going, Bleh, you know, and everything's going <laughs> up and down. And you're like, what's going on here? You know, and you'd, I remember we'd come out of these teachings on Mahamudra with uh, His Holiness and we'd be grabbing our friends, you know, because it's like your eye becomes very like, where is it? You know, so you have to like go eat and, you know, maybe, you know, eat a whole bunch of food and maybe drink some alcohol from just to calm down because we were just so high, you know, and of course it was still, we were all still hippies back then. Yeah. You know, it was just a bunch of hippies. And, and the thing that was different in the eighties is that it was still economically possible to not work. Mm-hmm. You know, you, it was still, I mean, it's, it was in the sixties and the seventies and the eighties. And by the end of the eighties, I think it was pretty much gone. But, you know, there was enough plentiful economy that you could work for a little while and then not work. So you could just take off six months and go to India. And also it was so cheap to live in India, you know, right? I mean, I was just in India. It wasn't any cheaper than living in the UK pretty much, but (laughs) I mean, somewhat, but it, you know, whereas before you could live in India in a hundred dollars a month, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, 
those times have changed, you know, and that gave people of my age incredible freedom. Like my friend Rob Priest, you know, he spent five years living in India in retreat, you know, and doing lots of practice and Jampa Shainman and these other friends of mine that we just had this incredible uh, perfect human rebirth where we could just practice, you know. Yeah, I call it like you you, you are part of the first wave, you know. Of, yeah, of, the guinea of, pigs. Yeah, guinea pigs, <laughs> if you want to call it that, <laughs> you know, uh, first wave to meet. The, the, these lineages and yeah and, and and just real quick and i i wanted to go a little bit more into like how that sparked your your serious practice in long retreats uh but yeah, yeah as, as you were saying in the galupa tradition i, I you know i think i think it, i i've noticed that there's this um misunderstanding that it 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 focuses uh you know solely on intellectual pursuits and 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 as you said, um, that's a pretty big misunderstanding because when, when you read the biography of Lama Tsongkhapa, it's sort of like, I mean, just the amount of mandala offerings he did. And I, I can't, I mean, yeah, and prostrations, let alone all the other commentaries he wrote in teaching yeah. and practice. Um, it's hard to even imagine. So actually, when you read his biography, you realize he was more of a yogi than a scholar. Yet, um, because of his realization, he started having direct communication with the, the, the Buddha of wisdom, Manjushri, or the Bodhisattva of wisdom. And so he was, he, you know, a lot of his, his, his transmissions also came as, as a form of, uh, what we would call entering the blessings directly, uh, and, and having pure vision of Manjushri. So, so yeah. So I think sometimes, um, you know, I, I guess maybe let's just call it ignorance. Uh, I won't use the the S word of sectarianism, but let's just call it ignorance. Sometimes blocks us from seeing like each of the lineages in Tibetan Buddhism yeah. are profound, profound yeah. Yeah. yogic lineages. All of them, yeah, yeah. all of yeah. them. And I and I I feel really blessed. I've actually studied with some of the great teachers of all four. Yeah. So I and I you know and although I you know I professionally work within within the FPMT, I feel really blessed to. I feel part of all of it, you know. You know, I mean, mm -hmm. I met some of the great old Nyingma. I mean, anyway, you know, that's good enough. So yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah, and, and and you know, I think you and Roger were were the inspirations for me in understanding that there was a yogic, you know, we could say Mahasiddha, you know, uh, ear whispered lineage in Galupa tradition. I think, I mean, Lama Sopa was was teaching that, but also. When I met you, I didn't really, I, I didn't understand what that was. So you really helped me to understand the profundity yeah. of that. So thank you. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think a lot of people don't. I mean, even, you know, Trunga Rinpoche, I remember uh, when I went, went to Crestone in 2009, received these incredible teachings from him. And um, and I had the good fortune, I don't know why, but I got to have, have dinner with him the last night. And I was explaining to him, it sounded like, I mean, it seemed like he didn't even know the the extent of the nundros that the Glukvas have to do. It's like, yeah. you know, before you can do a three-year retreat, you don't do the nundros in your three-year retreat. You do nine preliminary practices, <laughs> not four or five, but you do nine hundred thousands, you know, before you can even begin to do a three-year retreat, you know, so like yeah. me, me, for Roger and myself, it took us eight years just to, to get the preliminaries wow. and the teachings that we needed to, to do the first retreat at which they call it a, a three-year retreat, but it's actually a great retreat, which means it's, it's not time. It's, it's the amount of mantras that you say. So like, 
you know, the Vajraguni retreat, it was like 12 and a half million Vajraguni mantras. That's a lot of mantras. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's, let's, let's get in. So I want to hear about that. Uh, so how did, how did it go from, you know, attending these, these great gatherings, these enlightenment festivals, so to speak, in, in India yeah. with all these empowerments and teachings? Yeah. How did it go from that? I mean, well, in one way we could say, how could it not go from that to exactly. the life you've led? But yeah, yeah, to walk us through a little bit. And how did you end up in your first retreat, three year retreat from there, I guess? Yeah. Well, I just got incredibly inspired at that, those teachings, you know, because of the, the the experiences that I had and the idea of bodhicitta and the experience of bodhicitta and what that meant to, you know, just this huge care for all sentient beings and this incredible light that would just like shine out, you know, and, and what I could see in these beings. And I was just so inspired by the lamas. And I just thought, I mean, I was quite a naive person and I was one of, you know, as a Berkeley kid who wanted to change the world. And I thought if a Western person could develop those qualities, yeah. you know, that I saw in these Tibetan lamas, it, it could change the world. You know, if you could show in a scientific way, you know, that this is actually this thing about death and intermediate state and rebirth was actually real. It wasn't just like a myth, but it was actually mm -hmm. a scientifically proven method that it would change. I really thought it would change the world, you know, yeah. because... Because not only that, but in order to be able to do it, you have to be virtuous. Like you have mm. to stop hurting people in order to get the, the ability to be immortal, basically. Yeah. You know? So you have to become not just an immortal, powerful person, but you have to become a most altruistic, compassionate, wise person, which is what I could see as a teenager was, was missing from our world. So I just thought, wow, we need more Dalai Lamas, you know? <laughs> so it's like, oh, I'm going to be one. <laughs> <laughs> Why not? How yeah. silly, you know? I mean, now that I look at it. But well, it was, it, and uh, <laughs> so that was really what inspired me. And also, I I'm, I didn't really know about a three-year retreat, but, you know, Dharamsala, for those of you who don't know, it's beautiful. It's in the Himalayas. It's about, uh, what is it, in meters? 2,000 meters or 2,500 meters, 7,000 mm. feet up. And... uh it's in this beautiful forest, and I used to love to go for hikes because I'm a big outdoor nature person. And uh, I ran into this young man. He was this handsome young monk named Jampa Shainman, and uh, he was just finishing a three-year retreat. And I, he told me about it, and I went, that's what I want to do. I'm going to do one, you know. So <laughs> yeah. I didn't know how I was going to do one, and and uh, it, took, it was a big decision to I had a fellowship at Berkeley, you know, I had to leave that. My parents thought I'd completely gone nuts because I had really. And, um, <laughs> but then I didn't know how, but I started and I did. So I thought I'd start. So the first thing I did was I did Vajrasattva retreat, you know, up in those mountains. And that's when I yeah. kept running into Roger and it turned out he had the same aspiration. So, and I, to be honest, I don't think I could have done it by myself. There's so many obstacles. And, um, and also, I'm much more of a wishy-washy pleasing kind of person, you know, whereas he's very not like that. You know, he's very uh, grounded and, you know, I'm really watery. He's very earthy. And um, But anyway, so together, we just put our minds together. We'd help each other. And so that's what we did. And um, so uh, 
you know, we, we just said, he said, okay, well, we'll go do retreat. So we were, so we, we were, had planned to go to Australia and just live out in the bush and do retreat. And yeah. then anyway, long story short, Lama Yeshi was giving these uh, six yogas and Naropa teachings. And so I managed to, with my dad's help, get Roger to California for those teachings. And then afterwards, uh, we told, we were able to meet with Lama and told him we wanted to be Mahasiddhas. <laughs> and he was really happy because he didn't have any other students that wanted to do that, you know? Yeah. And so, um, so he sent us off on our first retreat, which was a year long retreat. Um, combining, you know, the six yogas with Vajrasattva practice. Wow. And then, yeah. And so, and then he passed away in the middle of it. So, yeah. And then after that, I mean, and I was in our, I kind of was the one who would come up with, you know, where where were, where were we going to go and what we were going to do and how to get the money. But he's the one that sort of, he was the one that made it, could help make it happen. You know, he could build houses, he could fix cars, he could, he could, you know, you know, keep us safe. And, um, so when I didn't know exactly what to do when Lama died, because that was my inspiration. And so then, um, Lama left a will saying that he wanted all his students to do a year long Vajrasattva retreat. And I found out there was one happening in Spain. Of course, by then I'd already done a lot of Vajrasattva. I mean, I did one in England, I mean, in India, and then I did this one for a year in, in California, but we went to one in Spain. And did that, it was this really cool retreat where the mantra would go 24 hours a day. And it was, it was what Lama Yeshi left in his will. He wanted his students to do. So there was one in Spain, one in Nepal and one in um, New Zealand and people could come for periods of time. But there was a group of us in Spain that were like the core group that kept it going, you know? Yeah. So that was for a year. Yeah. That I didn't end up staying for a year, but it was a year. It it was a year, but we were there. And because in part right about just before Losar, this is before the days of email, we actually got a letter from Mm. Lama Zopa, a letter, you know, like just sort of out of the blue. (laughs) I guess, I guess I'd written him a year before or something. And I guess I don't know how I knew where we were, but saying, I want you to stop doing Vajrasafa and prepare to do a great retreat. And mm-hmm. do these nine nundros. And so that's what we did. Yeah. And so we had to figure out how to do that. And, and, and when we first met, I had uh, some land in near Ure, Col- Ridgeway, Colorado and sold that. So I had that money and he had a little inheritance. So we used those funds to get us through those first eight years. Mm. Um, but we lived on, I mean, really, we lived on nothing. You know, we, we would always find a free place to live somewhere, some, broken down old house in the mountains somewhere and we'd just like you know live on two or three hundred dollars a month you know because wow. that's and i mean we ate rice and beans and you know our clothes were from the secondhand store you know we we were very very poor and for but for it was just more listener, yeah sorry, just for the listeners out there and yeah. doing uh, probably at least eight hours plus practice per day yeah I mean, that, that yeah, was yeah, job. that's right yeah, yeah. that's right yeah. that was the job we did it you know and um, we, yeah. So sometimes we, when it was the better conditions we had, we each had our own room. Some in the beginning we would share a room, but that, that didn't work very well, yeah. you know, because, um, you know, when you're practicing really hard like that, you, you get, um, well, we call it lung, you know, you get, yeah. uh, tension in your mind, you know, and you, and you, you, and the thing is in the beginning, you're having the faintest idea about how to meditate, you know, 
Mm. And you don't, and, and also we didn't, the thing I really appreciate about, uh, like Trungpa Rinpoche's organization, and I think Minga Rinpoche is the same, is that they require so many hours of dishamata on your breath before you move into anything else. Mm. But with us, you know, we jump right into these tantric practices. And I always try to describe it. It's a little bit like you're being an artist, but you don't know what your medium is. So, <laughs> yeah. like, if you're throwing a pot, you know, you're trying to throw a pot. If you've got a pot in front of you, you can see when it's going off sideways and you can mm. bring it back. Or you can just tell when you've destroyed your pot. And, you, you know, but when you're working with your mind, you don't know mm. when you've gone off sideways or when you've gotten too tight. You know, until it's like three days later and you're like crying and screaming or maybe you're yelling at your friend or because your mind's gone off, you know? Yeah, and, and so I, also the nature of like these, because maybe you could describe some of the nundros briefly too, but the nature of them, in my experience, is they actually, they bring up a lot of stuff too. They're moving stuff kind of up and out. Yeah. 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 Especially Vajrasafa. Vajrasafa, you know, Vajrasafa brings all your stuff up. So that mm-hmm. you can let it go. And so sometimes it's better to be by yourself. But, but Lama's Yeshe, um, wanted people to do Vajrasafa retreat as a group because then you would see all your projections. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't see your projections if you're by yourself. Yeah. But so it's a combination of things, uh, Scott. It's like there's that. It brings up your stuff. But at the same time, you don't know, you're not a very skillful meditator. And so you're, you get too tense. And then you, you, it's, it's, you're not chilled, you know, you, you, yeah. you, you get very sensitive and you can get angry easily or cry easily. And so, you know, sharing a little cabin in the woods with somebody going through that's not that easy. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, being, you know, pa- Paula and I, just for the listeners out there too, we, we shared time in retreat, I mean, separately, but we were in the same retreat yeah. land for a while. And I was alone in that cabin and that was hard enough, you know, just like I couldn't deal with like, you know, just being yeah. alone going through, I call it psychic uh, surgery for, you know, yeah. Yeah, months yeah. On, well, on end. <laughs> I, I always feel bad because I kind of, I kind of really encouraged you to do a longer retreat by yourself. And I realized that that was too harsh of a thing. Oh, no, it was, it was, it was what it was. It was great. I mean, I I don't know if there's another way. It's sort of like, yeah, you just jump in and you learn. Well, you know, Lama Zopa said, um, I, when we have to take my sweater, I'm getting kind of hot. Lama Zopa, oh, I can't. It's all right. I'll just be hot. Um, Lama Zopa said one time, he said, because, the whole point about dharma, right, is you, there's, you, you, ha- you have a goal, even though it's goalless. You know, we say we're not yeah. good. There's a goal, but you do want to attain enlightenment. And you have to do two things. You have to purify all the obstacles and you have to create all the causes. And you, know, you have to, you, you know, it's like you have to clear the ground, then you have to build a house, you know? And so, um, the purification process, Lama Zopa said, it's like if you have a dirty cloth, and you put it in the water, the dirt has to come out. Mm. The dirt comes out somehow. It's just, it just doesn't go away. So yeah. when you're doing purification practices, you experience the purification not as intensely as the karma that would ripen, but you still experience some purification. You get sick, or maybe you get angry, or maybe you have a bad dream, or maybe you, you know, or you're in a circumstance. When I did my first Vajrasafa retreat, I was like covered in flea bites, you know? I mean, it's a, <laughs> so there's, there's always something, you know, and you, yeah. and, 
The other thing that Mama Zopa really explained to me too is that what makes a good practitioner is not so much, you know, how much they know or, um, you know, what a good meditator they are, but how well they can endure the hardships. That's yeah. the real sign of a practitioner is someone who can abandon the eight worldly concerns and endure the hardships of practice because that kind of practice is really hardcore and, and not that many people can do it, you know? Yeah. Yeah, 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 it's true. So, 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 you, so eventually, uh, it, after eight years, you, you finished the preliminaries, which were are these nine in the Glukpatri. You know, and for for listeners in the Kagyu Nigma, normally there there's four and four. There's four, yeah. you know, thoughts that turn the mind as the common preliminaries, and four yeah. uncommon, the accumulations that you're talking yeah. about now. But then, you know, like you said in the Glug, they add on, you know, water bowls and these, you know, tzatzas and these and other tzatzas ones. And- burning pujas and purifying with your guru and yeah and but also we did two more of those enlightened experience celebrations so those uh, would okay. take nine some of them took six mm-hmm. months and nine months but they were all really 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 good you know yeah, that's amazing i mean that it basically that was the education we got and then the practice was the practice that we that we and so we got that education through the for going to india three three times and also living at Dharma centers and getting teachings from Geshe's, you know, getting yeah. like extensive long rim teachings or extensive. I mean, the best thing about being at that place in Spain was we got this really extensive commentary in the Lama Chopa, like six months of Lama Chopa commentary. Can you believe yeah. that? I mean, Lama, because <laughs> you don't know, Lama Chopa is like the heart um, guru yoga practice for the Galukpas, which is the heart practice of their Mahamudra practice. And it's, it's like just a sadhana, right? Just it's a sadhana like that's an ex- yeah. extended the seven limbs, you know, if you know what the yeah. seven limbs are. So, yeah, so yeah. some of the listeners are probably, you know, probably unfamiliar with some of the things we're saying. But yeah, it's like a, it's a liturgy of visualization and mantra and aspiration and meditation. Yeah. 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 It's basically, like I said, you have to create the cause and you have to purify the obstacles. And so th- these are, liturgies and practices that do that and then the third component is making the request it's like you know you can clean up the place and and bring in everything you need but then you have to also direct it to where you want it to go i mean you can create a lot of positive potential in the mind that um, creates the context for you know realizing interdependence mahamudra zogchen whatever you want to call that you create that cause but you have to like direct it. Otherwise you just might end up rich next life. You know, <laughs> you, might, yeah, you know what I mean? Yeah, you yeah. can create a lot of extensive, um, positive potential in your mind stream, but you have to say, I want it to go, you have to dedicate it, you know, like, like I want it yeah. to go to this, you know? Yeah. That makes so, sense. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. Great. So, so just, yeah, I would love to hear then, then kind of how you guys ended up, entering your first retreat in Vermont and what you did there and, and, you know, all of that. Yeah. Oh God. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen the retreat cabins there. Well, what it was, was we had finished all the Nundras by the time we went to that second enlightened experience celebration in India. So we finished them in the end of 1989 and that was 1990. And we went to India I think for seven months and had really more really great teachings and transmissions. And uh, at the end of that, we went, sat in that little room. I just told you where I saw that, um, the Kagyu, um, lineage. Tonka. 
And, yeah. um, and Lama Zopa said, well, where are you going to go? You know, what are you going to do? And, and we, um, he, he always does divinations. And so we, we thought we were going to go to different places. Anyway, we had to look for where we we're going to do this now, you know, and mm-hmm. so. Because just um, at the time, it wasn't like super common in that lineage no, it to wasn't do common. A, this kind of and retreat. Yeah. No, it was very, un- <clears throat> I mean, the thing is, you know, the, the Kali Rinpoche was organizing these three-year retreats, yep. you know, but those were group retreats. And, um, and Sammy Ling was doing group retreats here in Scotland, you know, but Galupas is very different. And the Galupa, you, you're supposed to learn everything first. Like, like become a Geshe, which we weren't. And then you go yeah. off and meditate. Whereas those Kala Rinpoche ones were sort of like school, you know, like, like you go there and you do your nundros and you get your education and then you do a few, then you do some short retreats on all the deities. And it's supposed Jamyan Kantrul's point was then you go off and do your retreats. So that's more like mm-hmm. getting a master's degree in liturgy and, and, you know, Buddhist education. Yeah. But with, but with, but with the galupas, you do all that first. Mm-hmm. And then what you have to do is you just do a one deity retreat, you know. And so you have to figure out what deity you're going to do. And But the other thing was is that, you know, we, we it was really hard to find a place because we there weren't that many centers and they all wanted money up front. You know, they wanted like Chin Raising Institute wanted $30,000 a piece, you know. And we're like, wow. and by the time we'd finished that, we didn't have any money left. I mean, we had a tiny bit of money left. And um, Jack Roger had some money left. And so that's how we, I mean, first we were going to go back to this place in Colorado and we went back there and then, but then uh, Roger said, well, you know, we should really be in a Dharma center so we have more protection, you know, from the mm. ele- elementals and, you know, the other forces that, that the more hidden forces that can cause obstacles and retreat, you know, he said, you sh- we should be in a place that's been blessed and the llamas have brought protectors and this kind of stuff. So so dear old Martha Tack, you know, she had just become the director at Millerapa Center and uh, Roger, we just She's happened in Vermont, to get right? just, in Vermont yeah. and Roger just happened to um, know her and we got a newsletter from them somehow because we were living in Colorado over by Gardner, Colorado, not on the other side of the mountains from Crestone. Oh, you're in Gardner because there was a, Trump- was it at the Trump Rebuchet Center there? No, it's but near it. That right across the street from the trunk oh, center, okay, wow. a, a friend of ours who was a, a student of the Gandhian tree Rinpoche, there was a glupa. She wanted us to start a glupa center there. And so that's where mm-hmm. we'd done a bunch of our nundros. And in fact, they just built a stupa there. And so that's where we were going to do the three year retreat. But that's when Roger, uh, realized that he, nothing was there yet. So, you know, and yeah. he wanted to be more protected. And so we ended up going to Millerapa Center. However, um, Martha said, you could come into retreat here, but your houses have to be less than 50 square feet. <laughs> yeah. You know how big that is? That's yeah. like most people's closets are bigger. I mean, rich <laughs> people's closets are bigger than that. But I tell you, you know, we were so determined and I think we were somewhat naive too, but we were, you can't believe how determined we were, you know, and I, yeah. and I, it's kind of, uh, sad when I see now because I've, you know, it's, it's kind of, like, I don't have that kind of, maybe it's because I'm 70 years old, but, you know, in the beginning, you, you really think you're going to get enlightened, you know? So it's like, <laughs> you got to do this, you know, but after you've, you know, been doing it for 20 years, you go, oh, well, maybe in a few lifetimes, you know? So then you don't quite have the quite, the drive that I had when I was in my 20s and my 30s and my 40s and even in my 50s, you know? 
Yeah. So, um, which is, what can I say? You know, I mean, maybe one day it'll come back, but I mean, I still practice, of course, I'm always practicing, you know, but it's not quite yeah. that determined, you know, I'll do at any cost kind of thing. Cause this was at a great cost. I mean, there we were. 40 below zero and these tiny little houses. I mean, it was really, really hard. <laughs> it was really yeah, hard. I, I saw those and I was, this is before I met you, actually. I, yeah. I, I was at Miller because I met the Drum in Boston. And so yeah. we would go to Miller Epicenter in Vermont often. And yeah, I just took a hike out into the woods and I was like, oh, oh, yeah, I'm not sure if I can do this. You know, like I saw the cabin and I was like, you know, uh, it's, I don't know if I want that lifestyle. That's a bit intense, you know, definitely. It was really pause. intense. It was really <laughs> intense, but we, but I think part of it was because I had spent a great deal of enough time as a young person backpacking. Mm. And, you know, Roger had been, a you know, living on the outback that we were kind of familiar with. And plus we'd lived in India, you know, so we were familiar because yeah. we didn't have running water. We didn't have a bathroom. We didn't. You know, we did have heat. We cooked outside in Vermont. You know how cold <laughs> it is. <laughs> and uh, I, I almost nearly died, you know. But um, the thing was, is that we were so determined. And I remember Achak Rinpoche told me beforehand that, that his time in Buxadar when they were in prison, he said, and, when, and the time when they were there, it was like, horrible horrible suffering but when they look back it was the best time in their lives yeah and i think he told me that beforehand because he could see how hard it was going to be because we spent mm. six winters there you know basically yeah. five years there and um but when it was over with i i couldn't i just couldn't live there anymore you know i mean i was done it was like but and i think that the reason why you have to do all those nundros is because it gives you the merit so that you can get through one of those experiences. Yeah, and Lama Zopa sense. came to visit us and you know he was really impressed with the hardship and the way because also we'd seen how the yogis lived in Dharamsala. We were living just like the yogis in Dharamsala. They had yeah. just the same kind of houses. So it was like, okay, well if they can do it, we can do it, you know. Because really there's no different. In fact, ours are a little bit better. Than yeah. like my guru's houses in Dharamsala, where they were in lifelong retreat, you know, and also very cold places. So it didn't seem that, I mean, maybe I was just naive, but it didn't seem that horrible. Yeah. And, um, but I, I didn't realize, I mean, I'd lived in Colorado winters, but I had no idea that Vermont winters was so much rougher than Colorado winters. Yeah, you know? much rougher. Yeah. And that, yeah. You know, just, just to segue into something you know you're bringing up an interesting point which i've come across too which is sort of like you know understanding our maybe even cultural limitations or our, our body limitations and you know just curious if you have any thoughts on that because there's a lot to say about that but just in relation to even this because you know are tibetans just are their bodies more built for this is it is it something cultural what is it you know I think it's both. I mean, I had to think about it a lot, especially in that retreat. And I was really grateful to the education I'd had um, at Berkeley in the, in the systems approach and studying ecosystems, because I was able to think about Tibetan Buddhism in the context of its culture 
and in the context of the geography. And I started thinking about it and I thought, well, for one thing, only the strong ones survived. Yeah. Because, I mean, their, their infant mortality rate was 50%. Wow. So wow. probably somebody like me, I wouldn't have, I would have died before I was five anyway, you know? Mm. And, um, like, you know, His Holiness, his mother had 13 pregnancies and seven children. Wow. Yeah. And those, they all would die. And so they were very tough people, you know, very tough people. I mean, look at the, the altitude, but also look at the environment. I would, I looked at the environment. It's like, first of all, they didn't have clocks. Yeah. So our whole thing, I mean, so much about our, about us is that, we're so nervous because, you know, <laughs> by the time we're six, we have to like be at school by nine o'clock and the alarm rings and we, you know, and we just, we don't, we, we're completely um, nervous mm -hmm. and uptight compared to, I mean, like you're going to visit somebody. It's like, not that you're five minutes late. It's like, oh, plus or minus two or three days, you're going to show up, you know? <laughs> yeah, I mean, they're be. so chilled, you know? They're just complete. We can't even imagine what and it's like. this is old, old Tibet you're talking about. Yeah, not now. Yeah. But yeah. but the llamas that, that I was really fortunate to meet, yeah. you know, that generation, there will never be a generation like that again. Yeah. There will never yeah. be. Yeah. Who yeah. grew up in that. And then think about it. All their food was organic. There was yeah. nothing poisonous, you know? They, they, their houses were not full of poisons. They were all mm -hmm. organic mud, stone houses. So they had a completely different, stronger, quieter body, mm. you know, and that our, our, our brain, you know, our, what we work with in meditation isn't just the mind isn't here. You know, one of my teachers, I like, he says, you know, wherever there's blood, there's mind. It's like your mind's everywhere. Yeah. So if you're tense, you know, if you grew up sitting in a desk starting when you're five years old, looking at a teacher, you know, like, you know, then you, it's with you for the rest of your life. And I think that we, if we're, if we're trying to enter into Tibetan Buddhism, we have a lot of like backtrack to do to learn how to become, uh, um, to, to, to to relax and to learn how to feel safe and to learn how to open our hearts and to manufacture unconditional love because we didn't, most of us didn't grow up with that. So mm. we have a lot to do to learn to make these practices work for us. And that's a lot of what, hap what, ha what happened to me in that for those first years as I was trying to figure yeah. that out. And luckily I had some really good psychology books and I had friends who taught me about Chinese medicine and I had studied some Feldenkrais work and stuff like that. So I was beginning to unpack all of the, the psychological and physical um, tension and obstacles that I, I faced as a Westerner that a Tibetan didn't know the first thing about. Yeah. You and, know? and, you know, you know, Paul, you were one of the first people to alert me to that. You know, that, you know, I, I don't know what it is. Maybe it's just sort of, maybe it's just sort of mis, you know, misknowing or ignorance or whatever. But a lot of us come into these, you know, when we want to be, when we get serious and we, we really want to develop qualities within these lineages. Sometimes we, we come in with pretty rosy, rose colored glasses. And we I was all definitely, do. yeah, we, we all do. do. 
And I was definitely one of those people. So you were the first person, I think, pointing out to me via your own experience, yeah. hey, you got a different body, you got a different experience, you need to take care of that. Otherwise, these practices aren't accessible. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, just just to add some further questions to what you're already starting to jump into, I would love to hear like, like what worked for you, what didn't work for you in this arena. And, you know, especially because, you know, you, you, you did finish this first great retreat, which is uh, more than three years, like closer to four years, four and a half. And then you, you and Roger went on to do a whole nother one. Uh, so yeah, I would just love to hear, you know, what, what you, you started to talk about it, but things that you found. Yeah. That helped you to actually access these practices, yeah. you know. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm I'm learning more and more about it and I'm just so grateful to the psychologists and neuroscientists today because in the last even 5 years there's so much mm-hmm. more information about trauma and growing up and how we heal ourselves and what children need. Yeah. You know, and I was just looking at something today, reviewing that, uh, you know, what children, what, because we really have to go back to our childhoods and heal that, you know, everyone knows that, but, um, what, what specifically just any traumas and things like that? Well, well, the fact that, but if you just think about it this way, we need unconditional love. We need to be able to express our emotions freely. You know, I mean, Mm. not that we don't need to learn how to temper them, but what happens to most of us is we get shut down, you know? And we also need to play, you know, because one of the things I find even more disturbing about children now is that they're, they're just so busy, you know. We need to have free, we need to know how to just be easygoing and play, and you know, because because meditation has to be playful, mm-hmm. you know, and not so serious, you know. And um, so if you look back at your life and see, you know, well, was I able to feel, do I feel my emotions? Do I know what my emotions are? And I think that... For me, back in that first retreat, I realized that, you know, so much of what was going on with me was that, you know, I wasn't really able to express what my needs were. Mm -hmm. And so if you don't know what your needs are, that's how you end up living in a place when it's 40 below zero because you you don't have the faintest idea what you need to survive. And so when you sacrifice your own inner knowing and your gut feelings and your own needs in order to get the approval that you need from your parents, you end up being kind of wide open to getting into trouble as an adult because you mm-hmm. you don't have your own inner compass because you lost it in order to get the love that you needed, you know? And yep. I think that's one of the first things we need to look at because if we take that into our Dharma practice, then our Dharma practice can end up harming us rather than helping us because we don't know what our real needs are, you know? And I don't mean neediness, but I just mean our, you know, our baseline health, emotional, physical health, you know, to find out what that is. Basic well-being. Yeah, Yeah, basic well-being, you know? We need to start there. And and how the thing that I think is was kind of the most um, interesting development in that retreat, looking back now, was um how I went about creating that inner safety because what we need to heal, what children need and what we need as adults is we need to feel connected to other sentient beings, you know, mm-hmm. loved and connected, and we need to feel safe. And when you feel safe and connected, 
and you can express yourself, then these traumas can be healed. There's nothing that can't be healed, you know. But what, what happened to me over the year, over the, you know, four or five sessions a day, because I actually had to do a fifth session just to do my commitments, is that we're constantly... These are five sessions, five... My meditation two, sessions, you know. No, 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 um, but just for the listener watcher, five yeah. two-hour sessions, right? Yeah, yeah. One so and that's a half two, four. Two. No, no, more when the four formal sessions, which are one and yeah. a half to two hours. But then there was an in-between one where I would just like lie down and d- do my commitments, you know. So like eight to ten hours per day, just to just to get <laughs> people, you know, people because this word retreat now uh, is losing its meaning. People think you go off and you know take yeah. ayahuasca and have some massages and do some yoga. No, we're talking about something yeah. quite different. This no, is something, like no, very it's real, hard work. It's very yeah. training. It's it's like you know being a residency or something and. Yeah. And the way I survived it too is you, you need to do a lot of physical activity, you know? So mm-hmm. I would do four meditation sessions, but I also did four physical sessions. Like in the morning, I would do prostrations. Before lunch, I'd do Qigong. In the afternoon, I'd go for a walk. In the evening, I'd do yoga, you know, because yeah. you're sitting so much and your mind gets congested. You need to, you need to need, need to put a lot of space in your mind. But what I wanted to share was what came to me. And now that I've had the opportunity to study with Gabor Mate and, and, you know, people like, um, Bessel, Bessel Vanderkolk, these people now who are like the big trauma gurus who are wonderful. I, I think I really highly recommend, you know, reading their books and studying with them. But the thing about needing to be safe and needing to be connected is what, you know, they say is what, how we heal. But I realized that that's what I got from taking refuge in generating bodhicitta. Mm, yeah, because I when I would, that. when I would, when I would sit there and I would take refuge, if you, because it was basically the blessings of Lamieshi, because Lamieshi told us, he said, that the best way to take refuge is without any words at all. You know, you yeah. just sit and you just feel it. You know, you just sit there and you just feel this, like this authoritative safety. You know, there's like it's like a, a parent figure, you know, some mm-hmm. a Buddha, you know, who's there, who's, you know, showering you with love. Yeah. So it's like it creates this inner environment of safety and peace, you know. And and if you do that over and over and over again, I mean refuge is so profound because if you really take refuge, and then the other thing he said was that 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 refuge is your own your own nervous system that the whole point of the outer guru is to introduce you to your own inner peace and so after a while i mean this is the beauty of doing a long retreat you know you just sit there and you you take refuge and suddenly you know everything just drops and you just feel really peaceful and calm and safe and protected and that's what you need to heal yeah wonderful so if i'm hearing you correctly like one of your discoveries among among many you're, you're describing here but one of them which i think is quite unique um, is the more you did retreat, the less it became about words and thinking, and the more it became about embodiment and feeling into these practices. Yeah. 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 But I, I do think that it helped to have had a background in dance and physical mm. activity, you know. And, yeah. uh, but then the second part was this is why I realized that Tibetan Buddhism is, Buddhism is so profound because first you get this safety, and then you realize that the ultimate safety is whatever you want to call it, pristine awareness, emptiness, you know, and you begin to blend with that where where you actually, you know, there is no I anymore. And so all those traumas and everything get this deep heal, mm, you know, that yeah. I don't think, I don't know if you can get that any other 
place. What, because emptiness is so this. much more yeah, profound, same, you know? I have the same question. Yeah, I think yeah. there's, for, for me, just real briefly, I'll, I'll share something. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah. I agree with you. I I think there's a level we we can heal rel- relatively, like yeah. on the relative yeah, 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 domain. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And then there's some recognition that the trauma is not self that need that then goes to this other level of healing you're talking about. Yeah, yeah I've experienced yeah. that as well. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think that's what people get in ayahuasca. I think I don't know. I've never done ayahuasca, but um, yeah. But then the next step is then okay. So then you meditate on bodhicitta. So then you connect with every single sentient being in the world. And if you've already got yourself in this safe, empty place, and then you connect with your heart and there's all this love, you know, because you do the four measurables, and then that love goes out and penetrates out into all of space, then what's more healing than that? You feel connected to everyone, you know? And so I realized that now that I've just in the last few years been able to study more about trauma, I realized that you know, Dharma has it too. It heals, you know, if, mm. if you can do it in an embodied, feeling, emotional way, not just intellectual, you know, if you have to, if you really bring it into your, into your feeling world sense, you know, and, and, yeah. and extend it into an energetic con- connectivity, you know, with, with all creatures, not just thinking about it, but actually feeling it. And I'll just add one more thing to that because I remember when the retreat had finished and I, I met with Fabrizio and he said, well, didn't you miss your friends? You know, I said, well, yeah, I sort of miss my friends. But to be honest, I felt more connected to them then because mm-hmm. I was in this space where I felt connected to everybody. I said, now I have to call them on the telephone because I'm not in retreat anymore. And if I don't call them on the phone, I don't feel connected. But when I was in retreat, I could feel them all, you know. Yeah, there's an element of what you're describing too. I don't know quite how to put my finger on it other than just using this word connection. You know, um, you know there, there's something I, I, I call basic okayness, which is just recovering the sense of, of yeah. inner okayness that we're all born with. That, that's I, I wouldn't necessarily call that religious. It's just sort of no. basic basic yeah. psychology. Yeah, yeah, well-being. Basic, yeah, basic well-being. And we all, you know, unfortunately most of us lose that these days as we age but kind of reconnecting with that and then reconnecting with um like for me that's where loving kindness actually comes online and that's as you're starting you know as you're saying where the buddhist practices actually start to click and make sense and i find a similar thing i'm not in that space all the time but but i but i find when i am i feel so much more connected you know it's just like you don't you don't it's not like we don't need each other. We always need each other. Yeah. yeah it's yeah, just yeah. that y- y- there's not this extra layer of neediness on top, which yeah, I've struggled yeah. with most of my life. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we all do. Yeah. 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 No, Trump called it basic goodness, you know, your basic yeah. goodness. And I think that, you know, the beginning of meditation is just to, to get that, you know, mm. get your basic goodness and know that that's your ground. And that when you sit down to meditate, you can connect with your basic goodness because then you can, you can go out in the world and not be needy. You know, you need your friends, but not in a needy way. You know, it's like because yeah. you you know that, you know, like you said, I'm okay, you know. And and even though you're not okay, you know, things are all messed up, but deep inside you know you're okay. And I think that's the that's the blessing that comes from a meditation practice, you know. Yeah, beautiful. Yeah. Um Paula, just just being mindful of time. Uh, yeah, we I was I wondering. Like, no, it's all good. I also <laughs> forever. Say, we could do a part two in the future. Um, you know, just, just maybe to, to wind, wind our conversation down a little bit. Um, so, so 
like how are you what what are you doing now i i know you're you you live and teach from Braveview, right? And, and so yeah. maybe you could tell us a little bit about Braveview if you want and kind of your teaching yeah. activities now. Well, you know, in my life, uh, these karmic winds come and blow and pick me up and, you know, and I get my life changes really fast. And this was happened this last time. I uh, make a long story short. I just, a lot of things happened. I was around Lama's Open. I got back to Land of Calm Abiding where where Scott and I lived together there for about three years. He was yeah, there. this is a retreat center in the Central retreat Coast. That we, we, yeah, I lived that for three right. years. You lived that for... I, about I nine years, I think. Okay, nine and, years, yeah. And I I mean, I would be there now, but um, that this new director came and told me I couldn't live there anymore. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> because I hadn't been there. I've been out teaching too much. And she, anyway, Gosh. she, well, it's not that she said I just couldn't have a house there. Anyway, it's a long story. It doesn't matter. She's, she, it was all, I think it's just, if you see things as all being a blessing, then they are, you know? So then <laughs> my friend Jeff, I just recently met him. He said, well, and he just bought this house. So it's a, you, it's a, it's an amazing place. It's a very, very remote in the Shetland Islands. It's, I mean, I, I think for Europe, it's about as remote as you can get, you know, <laughs> and it's far away from anywhere. The Shetland Islands are like a hundred miles north of Scotland wow. and a hundred miles west of Norway. So you're just in the middle wow. of the North Sea, this little tiny archipelago of, you know, and so the wind blows like crazy up here, but it's really, really beautiful. And um, the house has amazing views and it's really good for my mood or meditation and we have a little retreat house there where my friends come and do retreats. So, you know, and, uh, so I lived there and, um, I am, uh, Jeff has since become my partner. And, uh, although yeah. we still live separately, um, we're together, but, you know, I've lived by myself so much. I don't think I can really live with anybody all the time. <laughs> yeah. And I think he's really, too. yeah, he's really good to understand that. And I think he likes keeping his space too. And, um, and he's a very interesting character himself. So, um, so that's where I am. And it, it's interesting because all this happened, this big wind that came and took me to Europe was right after, um, I led a retreat with Lama Zoparampache at the center in Italy where he basically kind of gave me this big advertisement to all the 400 people that were there and told, basically, told them to invite me to teach and that I should teach in Europe and blah, blah, blah. So I guess my karma finished in California and I had to come here. So now I I do, I, I teach around Europe. And if yeah. I go back to California, I'll do a little bit of teaching there. But And I'm doing less, you know, because um, for one thing, the best time of year is the summertime here. So I just want to be here in the summertime. So I'm like, t tomorrow I'm leaving and I'm going to France and Sweden and places in the UK, and um, I'll be gone for seven weeks. So uh, to teach on a, on a teaching tour. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. I don't really call it teaching. I lead retreats. You know, I'm not really a. Yeah. I can't sit up there. I'm not a geshe. I can't give lectures. But um, and I and in the beginning, I thought I would could never be a teacher because, you know, I I'm, you know, I'm not a big intellectual person. But um, but it seems like when I lead retreats, people get a lot out of it. And I've gotten enough yeah. feedback now that I feel confident that it's a good thing to do. <laughs> <laughs> well, and and I'd certainly say, you know, you're, you're one of the more experienced 
uh, Western practitioners I know. So, yeah. you know, yeah, I think, you know, I, I can't imagine the depth you bring, you know, when you're doing a, how do you say it? Like it's organized and you're leading a retreat because, you know, a lot of my experience with you was, was not organized. It was just hanging around talking about music yeah. or, yeah. you know, just, just on a, on a break from a, a session and, and you yeah. helped me to kind of go back with, with some new life. I mean, it's yeah. still your, your advice that you gave me is, is the advice that's probably been the single most helpful advice for me, which is just show up. Yeah. So, oh, that's so, right. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, Paula. Just, yeah, yeah, that's right. And I'll just share the I, context though, you know, be, yeah. you know, for the listeners, you know, I was struggling in, yeah. in practice and I was putting so much expectation on myself yeah. to be this perfect yeah. yogi and retreat. And you just told me, just relax, man, just show up. You know, you said, yeah. you know what I do? I, I, I'll, the only, the only discipline I put on myself is just show up to the session. That's it. And I was yeah. like, oh, and that's, yeah. that's, that's actually been something that's grown for me over the years. It's yeah. not like yeah. I got it right away. That's something I yeah. had to practice. Yeah. But that piece of advice is very precious. So I thank you for Yeah, that. because, you know, every session is different. Every yeah. session is different. And some, you know, and you can't label, I mean, you can't label them good or bad. That's what I like about Ming <laughs> Just be with it. Just be with it, yeah. you know, don't try to push it. Don't try to change it. Just do the best you can. And that's good enough, you know, Yeah. because the thing that, that I've, I've appreciated so much is, is that it's, it's not so much the content of the meditation, but it's the awareness of what's going on. So as long as you're aware of what's going on, you're making improvements, you yeah. know, and that's yeah. the important thing. And I, I think what's exciting for me now is trying, is putting together, you know, the, the Kagyu, Nyingma, Galugpa within, because my, my practice is the sadness I do and, and the, the places I teach are Galugpa, but sort of informing them and also bringing in all this new stuff about trauma and healing and putting that all in the context of, you know, a uh, tantric sadhana to make it so that it works for us, so that transformation yeah. is a reality, not just sitting there and saying prayers, you know? We want to change, you know? Yeah, it's really beautiful. I got this image yeah. in my mind. We need like a college, you know, for this. Because, I, you know, we, we didn't get yeah. to it today, but part of my, one of the questions I want to ask is like, where is yeah. Tibetan Buddhism moving in the West? And I feel like yeah. we're, we're kind of, we're talking about it right now, which is this yeah. element of like the other components we need yeah. to serve, yeah. not only survive, but thrive in doing yeah. these practices. Yeah. And, and it's not just uh, us now, the Tibetans need it too, because mm. they've joined the modern world and they have all the same issues we have now. And they're traumatized just like we are now. Mm. That's yeah. what I mean when I say that that generation will never see another generation like that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's a good point. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, Paul, this has been wonderful. I, I would like yeah. to continue this sometime if you're up, open to it. Yeah, um, well, it's just really nice to see you because you are one of my dear friends, and 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 I, and I have to say, it's been so wonderful to see how you've grown. Oh, thank you so you know, much. Really, really, you know, and uh, and the fact that you've stuck with it and that you do what you do and you do it so well. You know, thank you're so you. professional. I mean, I'm just a bozo, you know, but the way you're able. <laughs> I mean, it was always like that, though. You're always the one that could, like, t teach me how to use my computer and, you know, because I'm old school, you know. Yeah. So I just really appreciate the way you can bring them both together. It's really good. You know? Oh, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I, I feel I just show up every day. 
yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's all. You know, there's 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 one there's one little thing I'd like to share, which has been on my mind lately, which maybe you could appreciate. A friend shared some personal advice he received from Sonia Shea uh, on sort of struggling with life's issues and relational yeah. stuff and all that. Yeah. And Sonia Shea shared that you know, he, he, you know, he's not just on on cloud nine all the time without problems. He's got okay. tons of projects going all the time. There's always demands of him, mm-hmm. and so sometimes when he wakes up, he just thinks to himself, "Today I'm going to suffer for others." And right. I thought, wow, that's so beautiful. That's you know? so beautiful. Yeah. And so, yeah. So, yeah. So, so for me, this sense mm-hmm. of just showing up includes that now. Yeah. 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 It does. Thank you. That's very, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. Um, no. Yeah. So, because we do, we do suffer for others. Yeah. yeah and, it, and, and that, that's okay. Like we can, that's not yeah. a bad thing. I think is what no, that means. No, yeah. because yeah. until we're enlightened, the winds are going up and down and all around. And all we can do is just be with it is as it is. Yeah, exactly. You know, suffer for others and be good for others. And I don't know, man, bodhicitta. I, I couldn't live without that, you know, the thought of sentient beings and caring for all sentient beings and becoming enlightened for all sentient beings. There's so much suffering in the world that just holding that little light keeps me yeah. going you know and i wake totally. up in the morning and just thinking about bodhicitta that's how i can manage so yeah yeah it's such you. a big it's such a big thing I, I don't even yeah it's sort of it's everything for me yeah and it's such a tough one too such a challenging thing to develop um i'll leave it here but but so paula yeah. where can where can where can people find you hear your teachings check out your music oh. we can talk about that you're also a music musician yeah my uh a friend of mine in 2019 insisted that i have a a, a website because i I'm, yeah. I'm like allergic <laughs> to computers i don't do it very well <laughs> and so there is a website i don't do anything with it much but um it's uh brave view b-r-a-v-e v-i-e-w like the brave view like a courageous view dot org yeah, yeah perfect yeah. and it I'll has it pictures the... of the house yeah pictures Sorry. of the place yeah so yeah, thank you rich, scott rich. this is pretty long i don't know if anybody listened to all of it but no, anyway. no, I, th- I think i think there's yeah. there is gems and so for people who want to find gems they have to dig mm-hmm. and so uh i think there's there's <laughs> there's worth in that yeah so i'll put braveview.org i'll put the link on on, on in the yeah. notes in the youtube uh video yeah. so so you can find it there if you're listening on spotify or itunes just go to the youtube and yeah mm-hmm. braveview.org and and yeah and and Please check out Paula's teachings. I mean, she, she's one of my my inspirations and just an amazing gem. You wouldn't know about it unless friends made a website for her. So, <laughs> so you know, there you go. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you, dear. Thank and, you, Paula. Uh, let's let's be more in touch. Yeah, I would like that. And and really, 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 uh, good luck, safe travels on your upcoming. Yeah. You, know, you too. Good luck with yeah. your new life. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. Ciao. See you, my friends. <laughs>